Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they took from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Our guest this week is Michelle Jawando, who is the U.S. Head of Strategic Engagement and Public Policy Partnerships at Google. Prior to her current role, she worked at the Center for American Progress as their Vice President of Legal Progress. Before that, she worked on Capitol Hill as General Counsel and Senior Advisor to Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. While there, she worked on a broad range of issues, including the 9-11 health bill, repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the confirmation of Supreme Court Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, and trailblazing work regarding sexual assault in the military and on college campuses. She is an incredible leader who has worked in government, advocacy, and the private sector. We recorded our conversation on Friday, November 13th. Michelle Jawando, welcome to Staffer. Thank you, Jim. I'm really excited to be here and uh, join you today. We are so happy to have you. Um, I know you grew up in Queens in a very politically engaged family because I've done some reading ahead. Um, Tell me about growing up and about your family. Yeah, so I um I actually come from Bermuda royalty and not being facetious, but my um great aunt, my grandmother's sister, um was the first politically elected attorney general on the island of Bermuda and was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. My grandmother was one of the first uh black nurses at one of the before that time, all white um, hospitals. And so my family and actually my great grandfather just was so ahead of the curve in terms of really pouring into his daughters and into his sons, just this sense of both community and connection. And so my grandparents met in London, came over to the States. And um, I tease people who have um, kind of Caribbean ancestry. We go like three places. It's like Toronto, Canada. (laughs) It's like (laughs) Queens, New York, or Brooklyn, or Florida. Um, And so my folks ended up doing... um, Um, the New York route. And we just kind of kept on generationally being engaged. My mother, on my mother's side, she's a third generation New Yorker, but her family were really involved in the kind of Brooklyn African-American machinery, right? So growing up, her aunts and uncles were supporters of Shirley Chisholm and uh, helped to kind of bolster her campaign. And so on both sides of my family, I just really have had this deep connection to public service and what that means and um, and really always felt that it was my responsibility. I mean, that's just how I grew up, going to marches, licking envelopes, uh, participating in campaigns and didn't really appreciate it until much later in life when I found out that that was not normal. <laughs> <laughs> not everybody participated in, in civil rights marches uh, for their birthdays. But um, <laughs> that's that's who we were and that's how we grew up. Oh, I love it. Um So when it was time to go to college, you went to Hampton University, the well-known, well-regarded, historically black university. And folks who I know who have gone to HBCUs describe it as transformative. Um, It is. What was it? Yeah. So tell me about your experience there. So first off, it is both transformative and we are obnoxious because (laughs) (laughs) any HBCU grad will will just tell you that they are the greatest. And and I think the reason why you feel that way is it is, um, you know, I, I can't under 
overstate rather, when you walk into a college campus and from the moment you step foot on that college campus, you are told that you are great, that you come from greatness, that the legacy of who, who you are in this country is important and it matters. And not only that, we're gonna equip you in all of the areas where you might not be strong so that when you leave here, you are ready to make your um, imprint on the world. And, and that is what the HBCU college experience is. You know, we have our, our rivalries between Hampton and Howard and uh, Morehouse and Spelman and Tuskegee and FAMU. But the connecting line for all of us is you enter a, you know, a Mecca, a, a, a safe haven, and you're really told that you are great. And I think oftentimes the Black experience in America, you are told the opposite in so many other places. You know, you hear these lessons, you work twice as hard to get half as much. But when you walk onto an HBCU campus, you, you don't have to overperform in your Blackness. You can just be. And it creates this sense of innovation and confidence. And it's not without its own challenges because so many of our HBCUs are under-resourced in a way that predominantly white institutions aren't. And I saw that most acutely when I went to law school and I was like, what is going on here? But what I found is that there was just such a sense of self-confidence that you get and, and really an education for life. And so it was really a, a special period. But yes, every HBCU grad you will meet will be obnoxious. And now that Kamala Harris, a Howard grad, and she's my sorority sister is in the White House, it's just, it's, it's too much. I just it's, feel sorry for y'all. <laughs> so I was going to ask this question at the end, but you mentioned uh, both Shirley Chisholm uh, mm -hmm. and now Kamala Harris. And I'm actually going to read a tweet uh, Ooh, that uh, that you um, responded to. Just to set the stage here, there's, it's, a, it's two photos uh, mm -hmm. of Shirley Chisholm and, and uh, Vice President-elect Harris uh, and LaToya Morgan uh, put over each of their heads respectively how it started, how it's going. That's and right. You, and you replied, the, blue, the beauty of the black diaspora, Caribbean love and immigrant stories, black centers of power, Brooklyn, HBCUs, Oakland, black women, lovers of freedom and justice, all in one picture, my heart is full. Mm, mm. Can you tell me about the moment on Saturday when it became official? Ooh, um, you know, even just you saying that, Jim, I got chills all over again. Um, so I, I will say two things, both the symbolism and then just personally. So um, seeing Kamala Harris walk on that stage and some people said it was suffrage white and then black Twitter said it was Olivia Pope. White, right, from <laughs> from Scandal. But um, see her walk on stage, hear Mary J. Blige playing in the background, um, and just the connection that she has with so many pieces of the, of the Black experience. Um, this immigrant background, the historically Black college, the sorority, 
um, working in civil rights in her own way. You know, so many people criticized her very early on for being a prosecutor. But I remember in law school, one of the things that we were told to do was to go and do that so that we could actually figure out how we fix the system from the inside out. Um, and what's so beautiful about both Kamala's story and Maya's is that they both worked on justice from different parts of the equation. You know, um, Maya Harris, Kamala's sister, on the outside at ACLU and civil rights organizations, and then Kamala from the inside. And so you see this deep connection to this work. And so just seeing her, I I wept. You know, I Jim, I just wept and I found myself um, uncontrollably weeping. And what I didn't recognize is how much I was holding, right? Like I, I, I think part of me, because of what we have just experienced, just put this armor in this shell around myself. And I had been working with a number of organizations to make the Biden-Harris ticket a reality um, in my personal time and my energy, but to actually see her walk on that stage to hear Joe Biden honor black people, honor people with disabilities, honor the kind of the LGBTQ experience. You almost forget what that's like when someone sees you and recognizes you. And so I think when I when I put that post up, I I was just so connected to the moment because I felt seen and visible in a way that I didn't imagine was possible at that level. Um, and, and it's a feeling I'll hold with me. You know, and the other quick thing I'll say is I've, I've been fortunate enough to know Kamala and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris and her family. And when I say that they pour into people, like that's not just like a thing. They, she has invested in both myself and my husband. Maya has been there to help me, guide me through some of my biggest professional experiences. And so I think the other thing that just felt like overwhelming is like, oh my goodness, I really know <laughs> like the vice president, like that's crazy. Yeah. Um, and, um, and that just, it just, it was just beautiful. And it could not have happened to a more committed family um, and I'm just, I'm so excited about the future. Yeah. Um, well, you said it all. Uh, I mean, it was poetry, <laughs> what you wrote in your tweet and what you uh, have just walked through. And I'm, I'm so pleased to say it hasn't, that feeling that you're describing, like it hasn't ebbed. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's still, it warms my body every time I see her on the screen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it means so much um, to for the American experience. It means mm -hmm. so much that it did happen um, for the whole world to look at. That's uh, right. You know, right. it, it from, means so I mean, much. For my daughters, they're like, oh, that's Miss Kamala. And they're like, yes, <laughs> she's the vice president. Yes, like th that. And I'm like, see that because that's real for you. I mean, it was, and it was similar to, you know, the feeling when you saw Barack Obama for the first time in Grant Park. But I think because we've just gone through such a painful period in history, you just you, you weren't sure we could ever move forward again. I mean, that's how bad it has felt for so many people in this country. And so to just see that it is possible, you know, the American story is always this dance of a retrenchment and forward progress. Um, and this time, I'm so proud of the progress that we've made. Here, here. When I uh, worked at the White House, the Office of Legislative Affairs is in the East Wing. Mm -hmm. And 
for those who have been on the tour, the official formal tour of the White House, that's also where, uh, you know, families come in Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of the tour. So, you know, as we were starting our day, you know, leaving to go up to Capitol Hill at 9 a.m. or whatever it was, um, we would pass by families coming in for the tours. And on the walls all over the White House are big blown up pictures of Mm -hmm. the president, sometimes the first family, et cetera. And one of the most meaningful parts of my job that I really haven't talked about is walking out that door on mornings that there were tours and seeing African-American families with their kids look at those photos Mm -hmm. and just like they didn't know they were going to be there. It was like a standstill moment, hands on shoulders, pointing at those pictures. Every single time. I mean, it was it still moves me. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, you know. That's the type of meaning that we're talking about, like who's part of our American story and what's possible for each and every one of us. And I think some people, you know, may downplay the importance of symbols and visually seeing yourself in positions of power. Um, But there's like a saying, you can't be what you can't see. Right. And so I think for so many of us, our conception of identity has been at some point point really limited and what we felt like we could do. And so walking into the East Wing of the White House and seeing a president who looks like you or seeing a vice president walk on stage or seeing a military family that shared your pain. You know, my family also on my husband's side, we're a gold star family, right? And so when you hear the pain of Dr. Biden and President-elect Biden and they talk about loss and you just identify with that. And you're like, this is the type of empathetic leader that I want because I can trust him because he understands what it means to to lose, but also that he values your experience because he recognizes that sacrifice. And and those are important symbols. Like we cannot discount that. It just, it, it really means so much for so many people. That's absolutely right. Um... So you grew up in a household and in a family that has um, had purpose, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, for generations, you've watched people connected to purpose. Um, you went undergrad and uh, law school uh, uh, to prepare yourself. It appears from your bio for purpose. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get to your staffer experience. But before <laughs> I do, you uh, you worked as an advocate uh, That's right. at People for the American Way before you worked on the Hill. You also worked at Center for American Progress after you worked on the Hill. And a lot of staffers um, in government or politics have not actually been advocates, right? Mm-hmm. Their interactions with advocates sort of fall into three buckets. <laughs> They're either being pressured to support yeah. something, right, by an, by an advocate. Um, they might be working collaboratively with advocates where they agree to convince others. Um, or third, they're getting yelled at for not <laughs> supporting the policy, right? They're on the other side. And, right. right? Um, what do you think staffers could benefit from knowing about the advocacy community if they haven't worked in it directly? That is... Um such a a great kind of description of the different roles that advocates play. You know, I have absolutely loved um, the various kind of professional experiences. Um, and, And I think the one thing that staffers should take away from advocates is by and large, almost every advocate you meet is overworked and underpaid, but deeply committed to the purpose of, of their work. Um, And I think what you also, what staffers 
And so sometimes there's like this, oh my goodness, I have to take another meeting and there's another group and they're coming in and they're dropping off this material and, and what is this? But the, the thing I will say is so many of these advocates spend so much time on the minutia and the detail that they are such a value add for your work and prepping and preparing your boss. Um, and obviously you have to sometimes take things with a grain of salt in what's being presented to you. But if you really step back and, and you look at either the research or the papers or the, the leave behinds, you will be smarter and better for it because you both have understand an issue that folks 100% are keyed in and focused on every single day. And so you get the opportunity to really learn from all of their great research and work. So I think on one hand, instead of kind of discarding that meeting, really take the opportunity to to kind of understand that this is someone who's deeply knowledgeable about that topic and what can I better learn or understand to share with my boss. So I think that that's the first thing. The second thing that I'll say about advocates is they can be such helpers and moving the agenda for for your boss. Um, there were so many times when I made a call to folks in the advocacy community and saying, listen, we really need to support Senator Gillibrand's bill on paid family medical leave. Who, who can stand up with us? Who can really step up? Um, can you form a coalition? And without question, we saw a leadership emerge. You saw op-eds, you saw press, you saw this kind of broader coalition. And that's so powerful and helpful in the mission of the work that you're doing in an office. And so I think there is this kind of tension, but advocates can be so helpful. Um, and you just kind of have to expand, how can I reimagine this relationship? Um, and how can this really be helpful? So let's talk about your time with Senator Gillibrand. Uh, you served as the senator's general counsel and senior advisor right when she was new to the Senate. Mm -hmm. And you've been involved with a lot of incredible successes and some high profile issues that are still underway. You mentioned paid leave. Um, I work with a campaign called the Paid Leave for All campaign, and Senator Gillibrand is a champion. We love um, paid leave for all. <laughs> amen. Um, but you were also uh, integral to the 9-11 health bill, mm -hmm. repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, a confirmation of two Supreme Court justices. I know a good number of Gillibrand staffers, <laughs> uh, current and former, and I have really high regard uh, for the people who come through her office. Can you talk about what, in your observation, makes a good staffer? Mm. Oh, goodness. Um, <clears throat> Jim, these are such great questions. I'm so enjoying our time <laughs> together. I am too. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I, I, first off, I will say working on Capitol Hill and working on some of these issues has been one of the privileges of my life. Um, and I think that sometimes if you're a kind of young staffer on the Hill, you, you forget um, in the day-to-day -day shuffle the honor it is and the responsibility that it is that you have representing the people of your state. And it is an honor and a privilege. Um, working for the senator on some of the most important pieces of legislation that we've had in the last 10 years. I mean, the fight on Don't Ask, Don't Tell 
I mean, when I tell you the the hours and the late night and the midnight conversations and the uh, meetings with Senator Collins and then Senator Lieberman and kind of can we figure out a coalition of people who can get behind and, and bringing in advocates and their families and then working with military leaders, right? And we were on uh, Senate Armed Services, right? So how, so how how does this work in, in action? What does implementation look like? And those were just some of the best experiences that I've had because those experiences taught me collaboration, um, understanding, active listening, right? So many of us talk, but we aren't active listeners, right? So how do I receive the information, process it, and think about what I was going to say based on what you've just shared, um, giving you the skill set of negotiation, um, which is incredibly hard in a partisan, difficult environment when the stakes are really high. Um, working on the confirmation of Sonia Sotomayor, I had so much hometown pride, but I knew I could not mess up and could not get it wrong. And feeling that pressure was healthy, but it was also like, we got to do this and we got to do this right. And because the senator was a new senator, um, there was a lot of who is Kirsten, uh, who is Kirsten Gillibrand? We knew that we had to do these things at a higher level. And so we held ourselves to a higher standard. And so I think the, the lessons um, of being a staffer um, are innumerable sometimes. I mean, even the little things like how are you responding to the thousands of constituents who are calling in? Uh, when we were dealing with the ACA, going out, people forget this, we had um, at the time this Tea Party movement that was really, oh, really big. I remember. Uh, walking in, there were uh, protesters every, and as general counsel and senior advisor, um, I was often called in to like mitigate the problems in our front office. How do you both explain what we're doing, but also how do you take the temperature down? Um, yeah. And so those skills of like negotiation and talking across party and ideology um, are all things that continue to serve me now, both in my continuing professional career, but even as a parent and as a human being, um, there's a deep sense of empathy that I bring with my um, to my work every day. And so I, I think first staffers, remember, it's an honor and privilege. There are skills that you're picking up in addition to actually learning the technical skills. What does it mean to be on the floor? How, what is the legislative language? How do I write a bill and make it make sense? How do I bring in advocates to either explain what we're doing or to get gain support, negotiation, listening? I mean, I, I could go on and on about the skills, but just recognizing how important it is and really who you're doing it for um, it's, if you think about it in that context, you're, it's a privilege to do the work that we did. It is. And, you know, to your point about the pressure, that feeling of this really matters, um, is important because it, A, it really does. Like it, 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 when done well, this, we are talking about policies and changes that really do affect people's lives. And we shouldn't be flip about that. I, I, I remember uh, early on uh, when I was working at the White House, I was on the Hill and some member was giving me the business over something that he wasn't uh, you <laughs> It know, was a day sure that about. ended in Y, so you yes, wouldn't get the exactly, business, right? <laughs> exactly. And I, 
I said, I am telling you on behalf of the president of the United States. And I, I couldn't believe that phrase came out of my mouth. And it actually was like a moment for me to be like, hey, what you say rep is representing the president's point of view up here. You can't say that lightly. You can't right. be wrong. That's you right. know, if that phrase falls out of your mouth, you're taking it to the end of the line. And that's true for everyone who works for a principal. You that's are right. representing them. And you've got to, you know, as you said, make sure your, your facts are right and you are respectful to everyone. That's right. When, you know, young people come to talk to you about like your story, mm -hmm. how you got there, you know, what do you tell them um, by way of not just logistically how to get there, but also how to prepare for That's that type right. of role? <clears throat> so one of the first things that I tell people is that D.C. really is a small town. And, and you hear that phrase, but what does that really mean? So I have always thought it was incredibly important to treat people the way that I would want to be treated. But what I recognized is that that may be really hard to do when people are fighting against a piece of legislation or, um, you know, or, or something that you really want to get done. But in those moments, it's even more important to treat people with respect because I guarantee you at some point, some point in your professional career, you will come, it will come full circle and you will meet that person again. Um, there were times when we were in deep negotiation with then Republican, very conservative Republican Senator Coburn's office. Um, and he went after we had finished the negotiation and really told my boss, my team has enjoyed working with your staff. That, that, that kind of compliment, um, means so much because listen we were on complete polar opposites yeah. but yet you carry yourself in such a dignified manner respectfully stating your case laying out the facts giving information advocating on behalf of your boss but never in a way where people feel disrespected and i think that's so important in this town because now you know things are can can become so big so quickly because we've lost that really the sense of civility and respect for other people. And I'm not saying that you lose your principles. I'm not saying that you don't fiercely advocate on behalf of your principal, but it is so important to kind of carry yourself in a manner that you will be proud of um, 10, 15 years from now. I think that's oh. the first thing. And then the, and the other quick thing that I always tell people is be respectful to the staff assistant, to the legislative correspondent, to the White House receptionist, because all of these people tend to continue to stay in this work and continue to progress. I will never forget when I was a young lawyer, there was a alum from my law school who I reached out to and I was like, hey, I'd, I'd love to get coffee. And she was like, I don't really have time to talk to you. Fast forward 15 years later, I'm general counsel. <laughs> Senator Gillibrand's office, she's lobbying me. And she was like, do you remember? I was like, oh, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> <laughs> I sure remember you. You know, and so I think it's really important to be respectful. Even if you can't um, do that coffee with that junior staffer, take five minutes and say, hey, listen, I, I can't meet for coffee, but these are the three books that I've read that have changed my life. These are the 
three things that I read every morning, Time, Newsweek, uh, you know, Daily News, give them a tip that they can take. And then that way you will in some way have imparted something to somebody else. Oh, those are great. I've never recommended books or news sources to people. Oh, yeah. That is that's really uh, a great idea. <laughs> and I, I do want to return to your point about treating people, both those who you are, you know, trying to work constructively, sometimes just fighting. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. politics is often, you know, you know, can it's be tough. combative. Mm-hmm. But I feel like and when something I worry about with today's political dynamic is that it's all about winning. Mm-hmm. And in fact, our political system depends upon winning the right way. Right. Ah. Everybody, right. <laughs> Everybody need should want to win, but it's got to be done in a way that preserves the system. So that even if you can't come to an agreement with somebody, you can walk away, but have that respect so mm-hmm. that later on something else, there is a constructive relationship on which to build. Yeah. And I really fear right now um, with our political culture that if people will do anything to win, you burn bridges so that other important things that need to get done, the, the opportunity just evaporates because there's no relationship. You know, the coarseness in which we engage with each other is really challenging, right? Um, you know, the w- one example that I'll give is I, I remember um, this, this harkens back to, again, the ACA fight. And there were so many people who wanted us to do so much more. Right. When we passed Obamacare, but people forget how challenging it was to pass the ACA. Um, but I remember then uh, 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 Congressman Anthony Weiner went to the floor and was one of the first big speeches about Medicare for all. And then we had uh, um, Senator um, Baucus say, listen, that is just not going to happen here. And people were enraged, but we said, okay, but what, what can you actually get done? And you know what we got done? We got healthcare for all, right? We got Obamacare and that was just such a big deal. And so what I, what I remind people is, listen, our political system is supposed to have polls, right? Like it is set up for people to fiercely debate, to bring things to the imagination, to push things forward. But our duty as staffers in the legislative branch, um, in the executive branch, is to work on behalf of the people of these United States. And I cannot, in 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 all <clears throat> good conscience, say there's absolutely nothing we can do about that issue unless we get 100%. That is just like a false choice that people really have to step away from. We have to be able to look people squarely in the face and say that this government is working on your behalf. And look, we've, we've gone through a period of years where people have actually been hurt by their government. So I understand the, the mistrust um, of a system where people haven't seen themselves represented, where government in many ways has hurt people. I mean, you think about these young people, these children who've been separated from their families because of these United States. Like we have a lot of work to do, but we every day have to go in and do this work and think about what can we do to make someone's life better? That is our number one goal. That's what our principles are there for. And that's your job as a staffer. How do I get my principal to move um, in the right direction? Yeah. And you made a good point, too, that some of the some of the most fierce tensions that arise in politics are with your friends. 
That's right. Right? Or with right. people who you agree with, but That's there's right. a tactical difference as to, you know, whether you take 80% of a loaf or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, after uh, you worked on the Hill, you went to the Center for American Progress. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and Mira Tandon, CEO <laughs> and president, was a, was a guest on our show. Um, tell me, what uh, attracted you about that opportunity and what did you do there? Well, I love Nira. I'm Team Nira, so, uh, <laughs> so Me too. You, you should, you should, folks should know that. Um, I have really been fortunate to work with just some like dynamic women leaders who are both mentors and leaders. I think you know, I think about uh, Nira at CAP, Senator Gillibrand, and even at Google, Susan Molinari, former Republican Congresswoman. Like I have just worked for some dynamic women leaders um, that have poured and mentored and. Um, and just really believe in the sense of service and giving back. Um, you know, I I will say this, coming to CAP, you really know, you, you walk into this place that founder John Podesta built, and you know, like, this is this is the big leagues, right? So you so you yes. know, when you walk in there, um, and feeling like I have an opportunity to shape intellectual ideas for a party for generations to come. That was just so incredibly exciting. And at the moment I joined, we were really working in defense of the ACA in the litigation, uh, really telling an early story about why courts mattered, um, having to kind of put in the public consciousness for progressives and liberals, like, yeah, there's this thing they called the judicial branch and it's really important. And there are these issues around women, like we need to make sure that there's a safety net to support them because our ideas and our conception of who are breadwinners has completely changed and our rules and the laws have not shifted to catch up with that reality. I mean, so being able to work with some of the smartest most dedicated, um, I mean, just the the level of talent that is all under one roof at CAP is just, you, you love it because you walk in and there's kind of creative tension in the, in the lunchroom as you're trying to figure out how you, how you deal with all of these constituencies and these issues. And Nira's is a fierce advocate that every single person in this country owes a debt of gratitude. She has poured so much into the fight on healthcare and really how you create the next generation of leadership. So, I mean, even in that role where I got to serve as both a principal, but also as a staffer um, in, in some regards, because we were we were talking to members of Congress all the time. We were talking to senators and governors and, and local electeds and giving them a framework on how to achieve these great ideas. And that was, again, one of, and I have some of my best friends from that time um, that I so appreciate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Diving in and having, uh, you know, comrades in a policy fight or a political fight, you make wonderful friendships. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you really do. And you learn coalition, right? Yes. Coalition dynamics on, in the advocacy community can't be understated, right? Because we often saw our role at CAP as a convener, right? How do we bring people together around ideas and problems and what role could we play and both in putting our research out for the world but then could you get a coalition of people behind one of these ideas was really important for us yeah so uh you are currently at google that's right talk to us about the role that you play at google that draws upon uh these life experiences we've just been talking about 
So I have always been what I would call an early adapter or acolyte of the um, equalizing power of the internet. Um, there is something just transformative about the ability to connect across boundaries to people of all kinds. And there's something so powerful for, for that, for me. Um, and so Google is a really spectacular place. I mean, when you talk about innovation and creativity and genius, you, you, you think about Google. Um, you also, for me, I think the idea and the opportunity to put values in a place like Google and action, right? How do, how do you bring that to life? So when we're talking about, um, we have a crisis around small businesses and particularly for women and small business owners, what can technology do to really fill that gap? And this isn't just like this amorphous idea, like it's a problem that we need to fix. And so being able to sit around a table with engineers and um, UX designers and public policy leaders and third parties and say, he, let's brainstorm and come up with a solution, right? Let's figure out how we solve the greatest problems of our decade. And that's what I like get to wake up and do at work. And that's just like a powerful <laughs> thing to do. Um, and it's not without its own challenges, right? Because you really see the limits of what the digital divide has done in this country. Um, I think disproportionately tech continues to have an issue around diversity that we have to recognize. Like we, the world has changed because of the power of the internet. Africa is one of the youngest continents. Women and people of color are some of the highest adapters, but in rural and even urban centers, we continue to have a digital divide in terms of access to broadband. These are like basic things that we have to fix in order to make the promise real. And so there's also this urgency that I feel, right? Like we got to get this right because we are moving and we continue to move and we continue to see innovation outpacing where we are as a country and how we make the promise real to more people. And so these are... Um, tough, tough questions and things that we have to deal with, but it's, it's a privilege to think about it. Um, so I only have a couple more questions for you uh, because I want to be uh, efficient with your time. You mentioned experiences and one of my favorite questions uh, in the rapid fire section of this uh, podcast is called In the Vault. Um, <laughs> I'd like to hear about a time that you royally screwed up oh. and what you learned from it. Oh, gosh. Even now in the pit of my stomach, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> I got a little yeah. nauseous. <laughs> so um, this goes back to my time on the Hill. I love, I love Senator Gillibrand. We were in the midst of the, um, the confirmation hearings of Sonia Sotomayor. And our boss had the honor to introduce then Sonia Sotomayor. And every person who speaks at one of these hearings, you have a time period uh, where your boss presents, um, you know, five minutes, three minutes, whatever. We got an understanding from the committee of how long our boss had. 
we wrote the speech. I worked in tandem with our speechwriter and our communications team. The day of, apparently something shifted and there was a different time. And so our boss in like the last 30 seconds started to be gaveled by then chair. (laughs) And she had to very quickly like finish her speech. Now, I think I always have a little bit of attitude that they gaveled a fellow senator, right? Like you just let her finish. But I think, listen, I think the the way that we think about race and gender, right? Like, come on, she was a new senator. Folks didn't know her. I think there was a little bit of that. But mm-hmm. I think w- the lesson that I learned there, two things. One, what are what are the rules and regulations that may shift or change from day to day, right? Like you may go into a meeting um, and a week before, this is what people told you it was going to be. But that morning of, if it's really important, that morning of, the day of, you touch base with two or three people, not even one person. You touch base with two or three people. You get something on email so that you will never say, I was outside of the bounds. Now, we were kind of saved because we had an email from the committee that said this, but it was still hard for her, right? Like, I felt pained because of that moment, but I will never... Because of that, I never go into a meeting, a presentation. I never staff a principal without doing a check for two or three things. Time, what are we supposed to talking about? I want to go over the agenda. Is everything still a-okay? Because things have changed um, and things do change. And you just have to know that every time it's, you know, game day so that you're ready. Even Uh, now, I got a little sick though, Jim. (laughs) I understand. I did on your behalf as well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that is great advice um, and a great story. Okay, my, my last question for you. You've had the opportunity to work with a lot of staffers and observe a lot of staffers. Mm-hmm. If I were able to build a staffer hall of fame on the National Mall <laughs> and fill it with statues of the very best, um, who would you nominate for ooh, the staffer hall of fame? Ooh, I have so... Ooh, um... Oh my goodness, I have so many ideas on this. Well, one, I think, um, and you're and you're probably this is this is probably not fair because he's about to be elevated to be chief of staff, but I do think if you think historically about just dynamic staffers, I think Ron, who is going to serve as White House Chief of Staff to Vice President elect Biden, would have to be in there. And I think for a few for a few reasons. One our our job as staffers are to be deeply knowledgeable about an issue. Um, I was strongest and I served my principal best when I knew the ins and out of legislation, advocates, background. That is my role. That is my responsibility. Because I don't know what question she's going to ask but or he's going to ask. But if I know my stuff better than he could ever imagine, then I am of most use and I'm doing my my job the best. And I think when you think about Ron as someone who's deeply knowledgeable, um, who also is personable, right? So this goes back to something we talked about earlier. There are people on both sides of the aisle who will say they enjoy working with me, right? My Republican colleagues from the Hill and Google and around town say nice things about me because people want to be around you. And when people want to be around you and when you have good relationships with people, you tend to get more done. 
And I think when you look at Ron, he's a person that has great relationships on both sides of the aisle. Um, new, younger staffers, older staffers. I mean, even me, I, you know, I can remember our conversation when I was starting Google and he was at Revolution and saw him at a conference, gave me 10 minutes of his time to say, here, these are some of the things I think you should do in this new role. Like he didn't have to do that. But he did. He took that time. And so you remember and you think about people fondly. So I, I definitely think I would have to put him up there. Um, but there are so many people I respect and admire. I think um, Fatima Goss-Graves, who's one of my dear friends, but she is also someone who is now president of the National Women Law Center. But she started as um, a staffer who was at NWLC, was deeply knowledgeable, and just was the type of person that everybody wanted to work with. And now to see her at the helm of that. Um, and the one other person I would add there is, uh, well, two other people, Nira and Jocelyn. Um, Jocelyn Fry, who was Michelle Obama's uh, policy director in the White House, um, but spent many years at the National Partnership, is probably one of the foremost experts on women's economic policy in the U.S. And just having the opportunity to work and listen and learn from her. And then Nira and her fierce advocacy. Like there is no one who will go into, a, who you would want to go into a fight with you um, better than better than Nira. Oh, and Carmel Martin. Oh my goodness, from the Hill. Oh my goodness, when she was when she was one of the chief counsels with Senator Kennedy. Um, I just remember watching and seeing her and being in awe of her and just like, how does she know all of these things all the time? Um, so I have so many people in DC I respect and love and admire, but those are some. Those, uh, those are great <laughs> nominees, truly. All first ballot uh, entrants. Oh, so... Thank you. And Michelle, I cannot thank you enough for making time uh, and sharing all that you have uh, with us today. So thank you. Jim, this was so great. Thank you for doing this. And, um, you know, listen, I loved the work that I've done. Um, the thing that I will just add is to have purpose and passion. Um, I have felt good and I'm proud of everything that I've been able to accomplish because I believed in it. I believed in the principles that I've worked for, the mission. Um, and that's made things easier to do, to have those late nights, to have those very small paychecks with a whole bunch of kids <laughs> because you believe in the work that you're doing. And so I, I've loved it. So thank you for creating this space. It's awesome. <laughs> My pleasure. So what a perfect note to end on. So thank you. Thanks, Jim. Well, friends, the clock's just buzzed four times and the Marine Sentry has left the West Wing, which means this episode of Staffer is officially adjourned. As you heard in the conversation, Michelle has books she recommends that she found influential. If you'd like to see that list, go to staffershow.com. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.